0: If you would be so kind to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. And uh, as Pastor Justin too alluded to a little bit earlier here this morning, is that we're starting a new sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And again, you may be asking, why in the world then um, are you having us to start out by going to the book of Acts. Well, this morning will be the prequel. I really don't, I like movies a lot. Um, I do not like, though, when they come out with the series and then they do the prequels to them, Star Wars. Um, It has a tendency to really mess some things up, all right? And so um, today what we're going to do is lay the groundwork, do the prequel work, of the church that is in Corinth that Paul is going to write to in First and Second Corinthians, but we need to understand the beginning of this church, the planting of this church that took place uh, thousand to almost two thousand, a little bit less than two thousand years ago, um, that we're still reading about, studying about, that is still precious to the person and work of Jesus uh, this morning. And so, as you turn there, though, um, hopefully, as you came in. Uh, uh, you did receive uh, this uh, Bible journal uh, that we are giving to everyone who wants one. And inside of it is the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll actually start using this next week. So please make sure if you did not get one at the info table as you're leaving today, if you're planning on being with us during this season um, and during this season. Uh, what's awesome about these is the opportunity for you to um, follow along scripturally, uh, but simultaneously to have space for you to take notes and then we want to encourage you to bring this with you to what we call our missional communities. That's our fancy name for saying small groups here at mission. Um, that will begin here shortly, and we'll tell you some things about those coming up this week, actually. Um, and so please make sure um, that you get one of these, that you bring it with you. Make sure that you put your name in them. We find them around here randomly sometimes. And so if your name is not in it, then we don't know how to get it back to you. So uh, please get one of those at the info table, All right. So Acts chapter 18, we're going to see the birth of the church at Corinth here uh, this morning. It says this in the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Today, on this second day of January 2022, we begin as a church family, the people of Mission Church... A new sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians, titled, Fight the Drift. Fight the Drift. When we start talking about this idea of what does it mean to fight the drift, it's important for us to put um, some words, some, some you know, semantics, to these terms. And uh, I often have a conversation about this concept uh, with one of my close friends. He's preached here at Mission Before. His name is Jeremy Rose, and he's the pastor of the Axis Church in Nashville. And uh, Jeremy and I, in these discussions, and his discussions uh, with other people and things, has kind of written out something here that I'm going to read to you to kind of help clarify. What do we mean by fighting the drift? Well, it's written down as this. The drift is the result of a Christian being deceived by their old way of thinking, that is their flesh, causing a very subtle turning aside or wandering of the mind and heart where they're drawn toward a careless forgetfulness of what is true to the point where they're unknowingly loosening their grip on the cross as they leave the way in which the Lord their God commanded them to walk and instead give themselves over to doing what is seen as right and good in their own way and in their own feelings. That is the drift. That we, much like a bug to a zapper, can be prone to walk away from godliness to walk away from who God is, from who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, that we are daily prone to drift toward to our old ways of thinking and even convincing ourselves that certain thinking is better thinking or our former ways of living is the best way for us to engage inside of this existence called life. This is the drift. It is a constant hunger. To be tempted toward the things of this world. Things like isolation, sexual immorality, greed, arrogance, selfishness. All of these things are a daily drifting and pulling toward us and our hearts like a tractor being. It's constantly wanting to pull us away from the glory and the goodness of God and what he would have for us and his commandments in order to pursue our own accord in our own way, in our own thinking. So if we're going to fight the drift, what does that mean? Fighting the drift is having a heightened awareness of the relentless, sinful, deceitful flesh whose default setting is always to get far from God and God's way. The Christian prays for the Holy Spirit's help and strength and courage as they intentionally seek ways of remembering what is true as they tighten their grip on the cross. Walk after God, hold fast to his word, and by faith give themselves over to a holy doing what is right and good in the eyes of God himself. So you're going to hear this phrase over and over again this year. We've said it for years here, and we're going to take a very pinpointed look in order to point each other, to stir each other's affections back toward the person and work of Jesus. Because, brothers and sisters, friends, we are all prone to wonder toward these things that are very attractive. The enemy does not lead us toward things that are unattractive to us. But rather, each one of us are prone, bent toward. You were born apart from Christ and bent toward certain sins. You are born evil, born wretched, born sinful. And it is not until one comes to Christ that one is enabled and can live in a different way according to God in Christ Jesus as a response of that salvation. See, there's the danger and the drift... Not only for Christians, but if one wanders into drifting for so long, then he or she reveals that ultimately they weren't saved to begin with. It's become very popular in today's time and culture. If you pay attention, much of what's going on inside of Christendom, even beyond Bowling Green, to to drift has become equal to what is called deconstruction. I'm going to deconstruct from my faith, which is essentially, it is the mean that you're going to denounce your faith. So there's all these believers, and I use that in quotation marks because what they're ultimately revealing is that they weren't believers to begin with. Jesus has a whole parable talking about this whole idea inside of the Gospels, the parable of the farmer who sows on the seed on these different grounds, and they will sprout for a while, but And they revealed that they ultimately were not believers. It's become very popular amongst people and even well-known former Christian celebrities have come out and, and they just love to testify and become witness. They're even evangelistic in their methods and means of trying to lead other Christians to deconstruct, to leave their faith. And why? This all started with a drift. Most people that I've come in contact with who are no longer followers of Jesus, which again reveals that they were never followers of Jesus, didn't go to sleep one night believing and wake up the next day denouncing. What was it? It was a slow drift toward these things. Brothers and sisters, we must fight the drift in our hearts. and if the spirit is inside of you the holy spirit if you are a christian the holy spirit is inside of you and he is enabling us and pulling us back likewise the church is meant to do that as well as we wander the church is meant to bring us back so as we look through the book of first the letter of first corinthians we're going to see a lot of drifting taking place, and a lot of the tugging of the gospel and of the church to pull people back to where they belong. And so we see that in, to understand that in this letter, that, that we've got to begin then with this understanding of how did this church get in Corinth to begin with. And we see that inside of chapter 18 in the book of Acts. These are the Acts of the Apostles, and if you've seen this inside of the scripture, it tells us that after the this, Paul left Athens. And some of you may be here this morning, you're here and you're like, I have no idea who Paul is. Well, you're at a good place. We like to teach the Bible here. Paul was this Jewish guy who was a Jew among Jews, a Hebrew among Hebrews, and he was in great opposition against this, what appeared to be a new religion called Christianity that seemingly was attacking the history and the beliefs and the traditions of the Jewish people. And yet, Paul, who also is named Saul, um, it's like, my name is Eric Keith Baker. Imagine calling me Keith as even my son's name is Elijah Cash Baker. Elijah is his first name, but we call him Cash by his middle name. Um, It's historical belief and understanding that these people, these men and women, had multiple names. And Saul was this persecutor of these Christians his name was also Paul somewhere in there. And in that, though, as he is going to persecute Christians, the book of Acts tells us that Jesus shows up, essentially knocks him off his horse, blinds him, reveals himself to him, and says to, to, to Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And transforms, saves Saul's life. Saul, this persecutor of Christians, begins to go to Christians. And you can imagine, because he was a very well-known guy, And they're really scared because he went from persecuting them to now being one of them. So Saul starts using his other name, which is Paul, and he becomes the writer, the primary writer of what you hold in your hands today of the New Testament. One of the greatest missionaries, probably the greatest missionary that has ever been known. He was a church planter, a pastor, and he would go from place to place sharing the gospel And from the gospel being shared, people would be saved, and then a church would be started inside of that city. Most of the book of Acts is about this guy named Paul, this missionary, this pastor named Paul, and it's going from town to town, place to place, talking about him going to these places and sharing the gospel. And that's what we see right here in the uh, uh, chapter 18 inside of the book of Acts. So Paul. The Bible tells us in this passage he leaves Athens and he travels from Athens to the city of Corinth. Now it's it's been said in history that Athens if it was the center of intellect, then Corinth is the center of immorality. It's the center of pleasure. The city of Corinth is a very famous city inside of ancient history. Um, it was a, a place that was built or rebuilt by Julius Caesar after the Romans took it over and destroyed the city and it became a Roman province. Then Julius Caesar sent the money and the people and the troops and the construction and all of that to go rebuild this city inside of Greece. It was a cosmopolitan place. It was the capitals of this uh, this area. There are guesstimations that inside the city of Corinth there was anywhere from 200 uh, to 750,000 people that lived there. One of the things that was made it really spectacular and awesome in this very melting plot of a place was that it was right, it was two ports in this city and it was right on the major trans uh, or the trade routes for both the sea and the land. So pretty much anybody trying to trade had to port at Corinth or if they were trading even by land and going toward Asia and those places, they had to stop inside of Corinth. So you can imagine all of these businessmen, we'll call them, um, leaving their families and going to this place known for pleasure. Corinth was a very commercial place. Um, And uh, if you can imagine with me that the city of New York and uh, the city of Amsterdam, if they got together and had a baby, it would be Corinth. Uh, This Corinth would make Vegas look like Disney World, or let's even go Beach Bend, all right? Love Joe Dirt and Carnival Rise at the Beach Bend. We see this, that inside of what was taking place, inside of this city, that it became just this place of great debauchery because what happens in Corinth didn't even happen, right? There was this, uh, this slang thing from the, the historians. They, they used this slang phrase when it came uh, to talking about Corinth. Uh, when you were doing something that you weren't supposed to be, you would say to someone else, live like a Corinthian, which became su- synonymous with the, the idea of living immorally. It was not a good thing to be called a Corinthian. It meant that you were doing and engaging in something that you should not have been doing. People went there to fulfill all of their wildest of fantasies, mainly because one of the, the, the you know wonders of the ancient world there was a temple uh, to the goddess um, Aphrodite the goddess of love, the Greek goddess of love. It was located inside of the city's center. So if you were here with us as we talked about uh, the book of Exodus, where was the tabernacle going to be placed? In the center of the people. Well, this was a very common thing that you put the most holy of places, your temple, inside the center of the city so that everything fed to that place. And the city of Corinth was very reflective of that that ancient idea. And then the center of the city is the, this ancient wonder of the world is this temple to the goddess Aphrodite. Now, what was also crazy about this is that um, working around this and, and working within it, instead of it being these godly men that God appoints in the Jewish tradition of the tabernacle, inside of the temple to Aphrodite was actually thousands of female priestesses and prostitutes who would literally go out evangelizing the temple understanding and the pagan worship of Aphrodite. They would go out throughout the city. Imagine if you're in the side of the city and just everywhere are these scantily clad uh, prostitutes who are evangelizing you, you're a man, you're away from your your family, you're a woman, maybe you're away from your family, Uh, you're a child, you're a young girl, a young boy, and there are all of these people who are completely convinced that Aphrodite is the goddess of love and that if you want to have her favor upon your life, then guess what you have to do? You have to engage in, in sexual immorality with one of these priestesses or prostitutes, in order to worship her. If you did not engage in this, then you would not have favor with her. So imagine inside of our city, inside of this city, that this is what's taking place and this is cultural norm. Can you imagine what the tracks for the worship of Aphrodite look like? Let's not imagine too far. But they were constantly evangelizing this sinful pagan worship amongst the men and women who lived there, but were also traveling through there. And we'll come back to some of that as we work through this letter. Now, Paul, as the Bible tells us here in this passage, ends up living inside of Corinth for one and a half years. So he spends quite a bit of time there in this, this pagan place of great immorality. He's the follower of Jesus. He loves Jesus. And yet every billboard, every street corner, everything that is acceptable inside of the city is completely opposite of the gospel light of Jesus. He is walking amongst people pure, acceptable darkness everywhere he goes, and yet he is one man who follows after Jesus and begins to preach the gospel inside of this place. Now, as we work through this, inside of this, in in verses, uh, what, two through four, we see Paul is doing his work. Paul is a leather worker by trade. He goes to the city. He leaves Athens and he goes to the city of Corinth. As he's in the city of Corinth, he's got to begin to take care of himself. He's, He's got financial needs. He's going to have to eat someplace. He's going to have to live someplace. All of these sorts of things. He has to sort of figure out. And so he begins to make things out of leather. He's a tent worker. He's a leather worker. And guess who he finds? He finds these two Jewish people, Priscilla and Aquila, who have come from Rome and have been sent from Rome because, and you can look up this in even Roman history, I believe it's Claudius, they begin to have an uprise in Rome between the Jews and these newfound people called Christians about the person and work of Jesus. Inside of Roman history, they begin to fight inside of Rome amongst each other, the Christians and the Jews, because the Christians are saying what? Jesus is the Messiah. What are the Jews saying? That's blasphemy, and it began to cause riots. And so, Claudius sent all of the Jewish people out of the city so that they wouldn't have civil war inside the city of Rome. Priscilla and Aquila were some of those Jewish people who end up leaving Rome and ending up in Corinth, where they come across this other Jewish man who is now converted to Christianity named Paul, and they have something in common. What is it? They both work with their hands. They're both leather workers, they're both tent makers. So Paul begins to share the gospel with Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, They become followers of Jesus. They become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. They have this commonplace uh, and work, and so Paul begins to work with them because it's believed that he is all out of money. And so during the week, he is working his job, and no doubt that Paul is sharing the gospel as he's working on these things. And then the Sabbath comes, which in Jewish Sabbath is again Friday night to Saturday at dusk. he goes to the synagogue, he goes to what is the temple, he goes to this place, and he begins to share the gospel with the Jews. We see a beautiful picture here of what's been taking place here as Paul is going from place to place to place to place to place to, place to share the gospel. And then we get to the second section in chapter 18, in verses 5 through 6, and we meet some new characters. It says, when Paul, excuse me, when Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, now, who is Silas and Timothy? Silas and Timothy are Paul's brothers, not, not flesh, DNA, but they're followers of Jesus, and they become his traveling companions. We see the beauty of, of them coming to meet so that Paul would no longer be alone, but he, he has these brothers that come. Silas and uh, Timothy arrive from Macedonia, from Thessalonica, and it, it's believed that they actually came to him to work alongside of him, but also the Bible alludes in the Bible, in the, in the letter from the Philippians, and I think also in Corinthians, that these brothers come and they're bringing money. Why do they bring money? Excuse me. Why do they bring money? Well, they bring money because what's Paul struggling with? To pay his bills, to eat, to live. He's essentially having to work more than one job. He's being bivocational. And so it's believed, or the Bible tells us, that, that, that Silas and Timothy bring money from these other churches in other cities. They, they have no idea what's all going on in Corinth, but they believe and trust the gospel, they believe and trust Paul. Why? Because he's been there preaching, and a church has been planted there as well. So they take up money at that church, they send Silas and Timothy to come to Corinth and to bring Paul money, and the Bible transitions, notice what it says there about what Paul does. It says that he becomes occupied with the word. It's believed that Paul, in that moment, stopped being bivocational for this season and had the money then to be able to take care of his room, board, food, all all of those sorts of things, so that he could every day, not just on the Sabbath, begin to preach the Word of God daily. He was able to preach full time. He preached that Jesus was the Messiah. The Bible tells us in these verses in 5 and 6 that he, he reasoned with the people, that he goes to the synagogue and he goes to the Jewish people first because that's even what Jesus' command is, to take the gospel to the Jewish people first and then to the Gentiles. So he goes to the synagogue inside of these cities because the Jewish people, are they're not Christians, but what are they? They're, they're right there on the edge. Their history is our Christian history. We do worship God. And so Paul goes to the synagogue that's filled with Jews and he begins to preach Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He begins to reason with them. He begins to persuade them. You need to repent, turn from your sins. Come and believe upon, trust upon the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And what is their response? It tells us here in these passages that they opposed him. And reviled him. They opposed him and reviled him. And then we have this interesting statement where it says that Paul begins to rebuke them, right? And you get this this picture the Bible tells us of Paul taking his his uh, his dress, his his robe here, that is covered in dust from walking the streets and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and then he begins to wring it out causing all of the dust to leave well, this is something actually that we 1st I remember first seeing inside the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3 talks about this. Ezekiel chapter 33 talks about this as well. It's this idea that when the prophet comes, when the evangelist comes, and they're proclaiming with the people, repent, come, repent, come, repent, come, repent, come, and they refuse to do it, then a sign of judgment for that prophet, for that preacher, was to wring out their cloak and get the dust out as a sign of judgment. Jesus would also speak to this this when he sends out the 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 disciples to spread the gospel inside the cities before his death and resurrection Jesus tells the disciple that you go from house to house to house to house to house house, and if they'll listen you sit with them you preach the gospel with them but if they won't listen what does he tell to do he tells them to dust or to shake the dust off of their sandals it wasn't a symbol of being rude it was a symbol of judgment It was a symbol of the severity of their choice not to repent and to come to faith in Jesus. And so Paul has been laboring and laboring day in and day out inside the synagogue. He loves these brothers and sisters. Remember, this is the same Paul who will say, Jesus, here's the deal. If you will save all the Jews and and it takes me to go to hell in order for them to be saved, then Jesus, then you save all the Jews and I'll go to hell in their place. He loves them. It's a symbol of judgment, but it's a symbol of love. Like I love you so much. Turn, follow after Jesus. And if you don't do it, then then the blood is on your hands, friends. I've been honest. I've preached the gospel. I've told you what you needed to do. I've told you. I've pointed you towards Jesus, and you have rejected him over and over and over again. So I will not be held accountable for that. But you will be held accountable. continue on and what does the Bible tell us it says that they reviled him that they, they turned against him and he says I, I will go then to preach to the Gentiles notice what he says let's read this again verse 7 and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus a worshiper of God. Now, who is this Titus? Titus, it says, it's an interesting phrase here, isn't it? It says that he's a worshiper of God. Well, Titus Justice is not a Jewish person. He's a Gentile. Every one of us here in this room, you need to get this, I say this often just for clarity's sake, if you weren't born into the Jewish race, if you were not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. Alright, so everybody here, welcome all Gentiles. That's who I I think everybody here is a Gentile. Alright? And so Paul leaves preaching at the synagogue to go where? To the Gentiles. And who's the Gentile he comes from? He leaves the synagogue. He looks next door to the synagogue. And what is there? There's a house. He goes to that house. Knocks on that door. Don't know exactly how all of that happened. But it says that he is a worshiper of God. What does that mean about Titus? Titus means this, that if he was a worshiper of God, and notice there that it's big G God, means this, that he was a Gentile that wasn't allowed to be a Jewish person. He hadn't fully converted to Judaism, but he was convinced that the Jewish God was the real God. He just probably hadn't been circumcised yet. So he's a worshiper of God. He believes that the God of the Old Testament is God, that Yahweh is God, but he is not fully converted to Judaism. So Paul just randomly, right, randomly goes to this house, enters into this house, begins to discuss with this man named Titus who just happens to already be convinced that the God of the Old Testament is the God and one and only true God. Paul begins to share the gospel with this man. And what happens? Well, The Bible tells us a worshiper of God. His house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So what happens inside this family? Titus becomes a believer in Jesus. But not only does this Gentile become a believer, this dog, as the Jews would call them, become a follower of Jesus... But who else becomes a follower of Jesus? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the Jewish synagogue becomes a follower of Jesus. We have here probably a picture of two of the most unlikely uh, people to be saved. We have a Gentile dog. The Jews prayed every day, thank you, Yahweh, for not making me a Gentile. You also, if you're a man, you pray to thank God that you weren't a woman. And what do we see? We see this man named Titus become a follower of Jesus. But we also see on the opposite end, it's like it's it's the difference uh, between like our community and someone becoming a Christian, which is absolutely fantastic and beautiful, and then driving over to Old Stone today and somebody at Old Stone becoming a, a follower of Jesus. You get the picture here? That's what's taking place here. Is that the gospel is going to both of these people and to their families? Notice what happens when the gospel goes to Christmas's family then they become followers of Jesus. They're all baptized. They begin to share the gospel with somebody, and then that person, what do they do? When they become a follower of Jesus, they share the gospel with somebody, and then what do they do? They share the gospel with somebody. It's called spiritual multiplication. That's why we tell you every week that we are gathered here to worship Jesus, to make disciples, and to multiply, not because we love multiplication. If you know me, I don't care what X equals. What I do care about is reflecting what we see inside of the scripture. And what is inside the scripture is those who have truly engaged and encountered the resurrected Jesus. They cannot keep their mouth shut about who Jesus is and want people to turn from their sin and come and to follow after Jesus. This is not something new to mission. This is the picture that we see inside of the scripture from Jesus through the end of the book of Revelation. What a beautiful thing here to see God at work inside of these people's lives. Notice that last section there in verse 10 through 11, and then I'm I'm going to talk and close this up here. And I really want you all to see this. Let's go back up to verse 9. Because I want you to be encouraged by this if you're not already and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them Our temptation, brothers and sisters, is to read about a guy named Paul and to see him as one of the Avengers, depending on what multiverse you pay attention to. We're going to learn through the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul was not a good speaker, that he was filled with much fear and anxiety and yet the Lord is gracious and merciful even to Paul and tells him what and the Lord said to Paul when I vision, do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent I want you to imagine again this picture that's here Paul is a single man. It's probably believed up at this time that he is, uh, you know, pushing into his fifties when he's writing this or when he's there. He's a single man in Sin City. We do not know all of his temptations and all that was going on in his life pre-conversion. Wouldn't you be fearful? Wouldn't you be scared? It's equivalent, and, and don't come to me and tell, tell me or your pastors that God told you in a vision to do this, all right? Because it'll be a lie. But it's the equivalent of this single man going to a strip club, and that's his missionary field. Would you be fearful? Do you know your temptations? Do you know your struggles? I mean we struggle to share the gospel with our own family members, like DNA family members. Imagine going up to the pirate, is there for pleasure. And begins speaking about Jesus and what it means to follow after Jesus. And yet Jesus, who is gracious and merciful, tells him, do not be afraid. Do not be silent. That's the text and context for this passage of Scripture, what we see at the birth of Corinth. And we know that Corinth continued on, right? Because we have a letter that's going to come later on. Some time has passed that Paul is going to write back to this church that's multiplied. It's grown. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I could not help but think about some, some things that were just... Uh, in my own life, but also in relation to Mission Church. And there's an author who, uh, his name is Mark Dever. He's a pastor. He's actually from Madisonville, Kentucky, where Justin's from and Brandon is from. Um, and his name's Mark Dever. And he's a pastor now in Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Like he can see the Capitol building from his church. All right? And he wrote this book called uh, The Church. And the tagline is, the gospel made visible. That within the people of God, that that is where the church is made visible. It's, it's where the, the gospel is made visible within the lives and the preaching and the proclaiming of those who belong to a local church. You know, over the next several weeks, we're going to talk a lot about the local church. But I want us to understand the, the beauty and the magnitude of what. how does the gospel become visible through the congregation. It is through the preaching and the teaching and the evangelizing of our city. Please understand that. I know that we use this terminology, that we plant churches that plant churches that plant churches churches, but we need to probably reframe that because the reality is, is that we don't plant churches, is that we plant the gospel. And as we plant the gospel, what do I mean by planting the gospel? That is us not being afraid nor being silent, but proclaiming the gospel with our lives and with our mouth to everyone that we can possibly build a relationship with and to preach or proclaim to and watch God work from there. As we preach and plant the gospel in people's lives, Jesus will save some of them, and then those them, they get together, and that forms a local church. I don't know that I've spoken much publicly about this because I've tried to be very careful. 2011 I left Bowling Green as a pastoring at another church and it was a great place for me to do ministry and for me personally it was a terrible place for me to work not for everybody but for me and I left that and got on an airplane with my wife and we flew to Surprise, Arizona. I told my parents when I left and my dad and Justin we got lots of stories about driving cross-country together, me and Justin do, in a U-Haul that did not have air conditioning, in June, and staying in a crazy hotel where literally I slept with my head off the mattress. Have you ever tried to do that? Because I didn't want the side of my grill to touch the mattress, that kind of hotel. I moved to Arizona, and I told my parents when they left to fly back, I said, um, I'll never move back to Kentucky. I'll be buried in Arizona. I'm not a pastor who's trying to, you know, start out a small church and then you go to a bigger church and then you go to a bigger church and then you get a book deal and a movie deal and you're on The Chosen as a background character, right? Um, I'm not that guy. I want to go to a lead pastor, a church, live there, and die their pastor, That's my goal. I know some of y'all are like, oh, you got terrible (laughs) goals, right? But that's been my goal. Drove all of our stuff 1,800 miles to Surprise, Arizona. And I loved it. Didn't have any family there. I didn't love that. But I didn't know anybody, and they didn't know me. And the people at Horizon Church treated me like their pastor, for the most part. Our church was growing, we're baptizing people, and uh, to make a long story really short, uh, simultaneously, you guys know our son, he's, he's the most charismatic one that we have in our church. He actually amends me and participates in the sermon from the back. He laughs at my jokes, even when I'm being serious. Um, It got really bad for our son, Cash. Long story really short, had to hire an advocate. They wanted us to hire a lawyer to sue the school district because my son was experiencing some uh, borderline abuse and neglect at school. So church is going really well. Family is plummeting. Thickest thieves, you know that. And my wife, also known as the Holy Spirit, had some uh, conversations with me about where she was and about if we were ready to give up um, on Cash's health or even did we need to sue the school district and were were we those kind of people? Went to counseling, talked with pastors. And it came very clear that Laura and I began to look to move wherever in the United States that we needed to move. And we settled that moving home was the best move for us. Because our family's here, our friends are here, we know the school district, and they're phenomenal. It always drives me crazy when I hear people talk bad about our school systems here because it just shows you that they've not lived anywhere else. As a dad and as a husband, I knew that that was the right move. As a person and an individual, I did not want to move back here. Uh, There is much pain for me here. There's much you use a trigger word trauma for me here. One of the hardest things I've ever done is look at these people that I've loved, and I've only been their pastor for a year, and say, "I can't do this." I choose my son over being your pastor, and I will do that again if I had to. I got into a U-Haul and lots of anxiety, lots of problems. Um, I still have not fully recovered uh, from just a lot of hurt here uh, from my childhood and from my adult life, from church and from pastors. Justin can tell you, I'm not making this up. I mean, our first six months was extremely rough. And it wasn't rough because of Mission Church. It was rough because there were lots of other people who were supposed to be our brothers and sisters in Christ who were actually coming against us to stop it. And yet, January 6th of this week, we start our ninth year. That's, That's worthy of that. We started with 20 people in my sister's living room on Nugget Drive. Half of those people aren't with us anymore. Justin and I and our wives have had to say goodbye to some of our best friends. There's about 10 of us in this room, not counting our kids, who were with us in those early days. I mean, Adam Hammonds was a frat boy. (laughs) Sorry, Casey. You, you've, you've changed him. But do you know how that frat boy came here? It was because Justin and another one of our founding members was having a Bible study in a frat house and got to know Adam Hammonds. And when we planted Mission church, Adam started coming and like Adam still does started bringing people with him to become half of the room was Adam's friends people have gone, people have come and yet on January the 6th we start our ninth year of ministry and while I still have trauma and hurt and pain love this city and I love you and I pray to the good Lord that he allows me to stay here the rest of my life as a member of this church why and there's enough churches that's what I heard you just want my people and my money that's what a preacher told me here in town You just want my people and my money. I don't want your people or your money. A few months ago, I was able to have a meeting with some local pastors, and I said, guys, brothers, I just need to testify to the goodness of God's grace as he has just really worked as we've kept our hands to the gospel plow at mission. I said, this past year, in the year of a pandemic, all the craziness that is, I mean, we got freaking killer hornets and a pandemic, and I mean, Ohio State won yesterday, which is like, poof, uh, like, if Alabama wins, Jesus is coming back, all right? Let's all be, all be Georgia fans. Go dogs! All right? Sorry, Adam. Um, and I said, and, and they may have thought this was not nice of me, but I meant it nice. I, I just looked at these brothers and I said here's the deal our church is growing in discipleship it's growing numerically it's growing in membership and I said brothers you know what excites me the most is none of them came from your church I'm not convinced that the church in Bowling Green is growing. What I'm convinced of is, is that we get tired of certain places. We pick up and we move to another place. And we stay there for so long. We get entertained until it becomes boring enough there. And we pick up and we go to another thing. Right? And I'm just so thankful that that We needed that at first. Our first few years, brothers and sisters, we needed some good, strong Christians to come be with us. But I'm so thankful for what we have seen as we have continued to stay put that we're going to preach the gospel at Mission Church. You're probably going to get bored here. We got one sermon. Jesus. Him crucified and Him resurrected. That's all we got for you. This is never going to be a program different place. Okay? I'm not anti children's ministry. I'm not anti youth ministry. I'm not anti senior citizens ministry. I'm not anti any of those sorts of things. But if that's the reason why we belong to a local church, then I think that we've missed why we belong to a local church. Why did these people belong to the local church? They were absolutely 100% convinced Jesus is Lord. That was the unifying factor. That's why we state things like the Apostles' Creed. That's why we sing songs like the Creed song to say, now this this is what we're about. Are these close-handed things that we are all about Jesus, Him crucified and Him resurrected. Repent, turn, follow after Jesus. Trust He is your only way to be reconciled with God is that you completely put your faith and trust in Jesus and Him alone. Come to Jesus Don't come to an event. Come to Jesus. Don't come to flashiness. Come to Jesus. He is the reason why we stay. He's the reason why I I continue to come, and I still have these moments. I'm, I'm prone to drift toward fear. I'm prone to drift toward silence. I'm prone to drift and to shake my head and say, why am I doing this? Because Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is savior. In Mission Church, we've become fearful. And we've become silent and drifting toward keeping our mouths shut of the greatest news that is on the planet. And what is that? That Jesus is savior. That Jesus is Lord. And that Jesus' gospel is powerful enough to transform the lives of anyone. When we look at Acts and the birth of this beautiful church, what do we see is that as we plant the gospel, Jesus builds his church. That's what he promises that he will do. He has chosen the means. What is the means? Share the gospel, 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 share the gospel. In all those sharings of the gospel, Jesus will, he should save none of them, but will choose to save some of them. Why? Because there are people inside the city of Bowling Green that they don't know that they're his yet. And we preach the gospel, and in that moment, what does God do? He arrests their dead souls and resurrects them to new life. What do we see and learn from this passage? That again, as I mentioned, that the power of the gospel has to save the most unlikely of people. I mean, I want y'all to look around. All right? Some of y'all are lookers. Some of us... Laura said we were watching some show and she said, you know, that couple just doesn't look like they match. And I looked at her and I said... I can't say nothing. Angel just got its wings. All right? The most unlikely of characters. The sweetest people in this room have done things that you and I would be absolutely disgusted by. The godliest of people in this room have a past and there are things about them that they would not want you to visualize and see. There are rich people in here. There are poor people in here. There are people in here that don't say bathroom words. Y'all have heard me talk about my mama calling bad words bathroom words. We don't say bathroom words in this house. Right? And there are some of you who are poetic in your ability to sling together cuss words into intellectual sentences. We got people don't drink in here, and we've had people who smell like it, that they drink a lot. We got people in here ain't never seen a drug except for on TV. And we've had dealers, users, abusers. We've got virgins, and we've got prostitutes. the gospel is powerful enough to save all. As the Bible says, and so were some of you. We see from this passage that sharing the gospel can be fearful. This is scary. Anybody want to trade next Sunday? phobia in the world is speaking in front of people. Imagine speaking in front of people and preaching the gospel. But you know where we've drifted towards silence, Mission Church? It's not in the pulpit. It's in our neighborhoods. Because we're scared. Maybe there's been a lack of training. So what we're going to do here is in the next few weeks, we'll unroll all of this to you guys and communicate it to you this week. So make sure you actually read our email. We'll talk about this some next Sunday as well, but please make sure that you read it this week. Is that coming up, one of the things that we're going to do um, inside of our missional communities is we're going to spend some time at the beginning of them uh, doing some training on how to share the gospel and practicing of sharing the gospel so that fear and lack of practice or how to do it can no longer be an excuse so that if we don't do it then we we simply have to agree that it's not an issue of of do we know how but it's an issue of our heart. We want to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Why? Why? Because the last thing that I see inside this passage that's important for us is that sharing the gospel is the responsibility of the entire church. There are going to be people who are gifted in evangelism, right? But all Christians are evangelists. What does that mean? We all share the gospel. And somehow in American Christianity, uh, we have drifted toward the belief that that's not true. And yet, what do we see here? Priscilla Aquila, Silas, Timothy, Paul. Share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel share the gospel. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. We open up our homes. We open up this church building. We open up everything. We give of our time, talent, and treasure to this end. We do not stop pacing the floor. We do not rest because there are lost people who are in our city who don't know that they're the lords yet, and the way that God is going to reveal himself is through you preaching the gospel at your job, as you're working with your hands, as you're in that cubicle, as you're walking down in your neighborhoods, as you're building relationships with people that you live with, as you talk to your non-Christian family members, as you preach the gospel to them, it is a responsibility not of one, not of two, not of three it is the responsibility of all of us who call ourselves Christians to come in contact and to preach this gospel. Why? Because it is at the core of what it means to be Christian. And you know what? In some circles when our church that's happening. It is absolutely beautiful. All right, we're about to own a Chick Fil A. If y'all keep doing that, all right, y'all keep y'all keep sharing the gospel at Chick Fil A. All right, Vanderpool kids, or it's, you're not kids anymore, like old people. Vanderpools, Hannah and Jonathan's old kids, uh, old people. There we go. Um, you keep preaching the gospel. Hey, <laughs> beastie, you keep preaching the gospel at Chick Fil A. Even those church kids with the skirts on, you know what they need? Jesus. Church of Christ kids need Jesus. Baptist kids need Jesus. Pentecostal kids need Jesus. Non-Christians, atheists, agnostics, they all need what? They need Jesus. That's going to happen. It's why they're working with their hands. They're preaching the gospel. For me, it's going up on campus and preaching the gospel to my students. It's sharing the gospel with my neighbors. It's, it's people working at Hope House, and, and that's the reason why we support Hope House. Is, hey, we're, we're going to help you, but you need to understand your greater need is the, the spiritual bankruptcy that you're experiencing, and that's why you need Jesus. If, they, if Hope House did not proclaim the gospel, we wouldn't partner with them. It's Trevor Ayers going door to door in this neighborhood. How can we pray for you? How can we share the gospel? It, it's Adam Hammonds going from the frat boy to working with Afghanistan's... Afghans... Um, in preaching the gospel to Muslim brothers and sisters. All right? It's all these things that all of you are doing, or many that you are doing, I just don't have time to talk about all of those this morning. Mission Church, let's not be silent. Jesus is with us. And if he is with us, Let's preach him all the more. All right? Let's pray. Family.